The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hello and welcome to episode 17 17. of the Cinematography Podcast. Now, this has been a slow year, but we are going for a fine finish at the end. And we had three episodes for you right in a row. Christian Seabalt, and then we had Jim Frona, and now, holy crap, we have Charlotta Bruce Christensen. It's a record. It's a record for us. It's a personal yeah. so It's a personal best. Don't don't judge us. <laughs> so That's true. The the year uh started off a bit slow. You had a, a play that went on for several months. I had a play that sucked my ability to do anything but work on that play out of my body from I'm going to say February through April. Yeah, that, that that was that was probably our our doldrums. Yeah, so sorry about that everybody, but you're welcome everyone who saw the play. It was awesome. It was a lot of fun. I'm sorry I missed it. It'll never, it'll never be repeated it's, too. It'll never be repeated. And it's a play I've been wanting to do since I was 17. No big deal. Yeah, anyway. exactly. Now uh, I'm, I'm dead to you. NBD. <laughs> All right. So Ben, meet anyone interesting? Yes. In fact, that's a, that's a very clever. <laughs> that's uh, a loaded question. So this week, my good friend, Janelle Riley, who is a writer at Variety, invited me to a screening of The Post, the new Steven Spielberg movie. And then she said, can you give me a ride? She's uh, a moderator for Q and A's. So I go there. Michael Kahn is there. Like the, the, edit- the Michael Kahn. The Michael Kahn who edited every Steven Spielberg movie from Close Encounters until The Post and is currently editing Ready Player One, mm. uh, except for E.T., by the way. He didn't oh. edit E.T. Okay, gotcha. Side note. Anyway, so he's there. Gary Rydstrom is there, legendary sound designer of everything that's ever sounded awesome in your life. You, you look him up on IMDb, Gary Rydstrom, blow your mind. He, I didn't realize it was him because he just came up and shook my hand and said, hey, I'm Gary. So then I'm like hanging with Janelle and they're like, come on into the green room, everybody. And I'm just kind of like a dumb, a dumb fuck. I followed hanging her. with in. Gary and Mike. Yeah. 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 Okay. And they're Steven Spielberg. Yeah. And uh, and this is the green room at the DGA. And he's just standing there. He's wearing like jeans and sneakers and a jacket and a scarf. It was cold. All the blood like rushed completely out of my body. I I, I, I don't get starstruck. I've met a lot of people whose work I greatly admire. And I'm usually pretty okay at just kind of walking over and shaking their hand and being cool about it. And Spielberg, it's like Spielberg created the cinematic world that we live in today. Mm-hmm. He, he did, you know, and it's like, you know, you think like this is the guy who made Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark and E.T. E- <laughs> <laughs> like how many like this, this guy really like created a giant chunk of our culture. Like it would be like if I was a comic book guy meeting Stan Lee, who I met Stan Lee once super nice guy. I'm not a comic book guy. Didn't have the effect of you yeah, as it's like Spielberg. I, did. I knew that I was standing in the presence of greatness. I was very nice to Stan Lee. He was very nice to me. You know, it was cool. But meeting Spielberg, it was like, I shit all the pants all at once. <laughs> I shit them all. And so I was just kind of trying to be cool and hang back. And Janelle had, because she was moderating a Q and a that he was in, walked over and started talking to him. And then she pointed at me and said, Hey, that's my friend Ben over there. He's too shy to say hi, to come over. And he went, hi, Ben. And I, and this isn't really what happened, but this is the way it felt is that suddenly everyone in the room looked at me like, Hey, asshole, you know? And I, <laughs> Did your mouth went dry? A little bit. Eyes roll back in your head. A <laughs> little bit. So I walked. Knees got weak. I walked over. 
<laughs> I walked over and uh, shook his hand and talked to him for about five, ten minutes. Actually, super approachable, nice guy. There, there was someone who I believe was a bodyguard in the room with yeah. us. Mm. But it's like you didn't get in that room if nobody, if you were acting weird or there's some nobody knew who you were, you weren't getting in that room anyway. I don't even know that the guy was a bodyguard. For all I know, he might have been just somebody who worked at the DGA who was a looky loo and just wanted to like <laughs> wanted to wanted to be a fly on the wall yeah. and on Steven Spielberg. You don't so. look right at Spielberg. You hold up a plate with a pinhole through it and look at the and look at his <laughs> it could blind you his genius could blind you no but I, I mean really I, I was super impressed with him uh, both there and at the Q&A I actually uh, put this on Facebook but I, I think the, I learned a few things number one when, and this is when I was talking to him when he's nominated for any kind of award he sends a gift basket to all the other directors who are nominated for awards. Now that could be like a very, you know, Don Corleone kind of a yeah, thing to do. Yeah, it really could be. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a no, horse but, head in someone's but, bed. It's but like no. A, it's a gift basket at my no, doorstep. But Janelle asked him about that because she knew one of the other directors who'd been nominated in the past and she said that this director got a great gift basket from Spielberg. He's like, yeah, man, us directors, we just got to stick together. We're all, you know, we're all in it together. And uh, then he, uh, during the Q&A, he said something that I was so happy to hear the preeminent auteur of of film directing since the 1970s say Mo- this modern cinema modern cinema yes modern american cinema sure yeah. he said that he doesn't believe in auteur theory and that he thinks that auteur theory is bullshit i don't mm-hmm. know that he said bullshit he probably he might have said bullshit you were you were you couldn't you couldn't really grasp and lock onto which words were being spoken it was just it know. was just genius pumping right into it, our, it was like face. music yeah. <laughs> just like it really was no but he said that he didn't believe in auteur theory he was like if you want to be the complete author of your own work go paint a painting this is team art that's true collaborative art Very and, true. and he said that many of his best ideas weren't his own mm. and I, I i mean it's just like I, I i felt similarly when years ago i worked for ron howard realizing that like this guy whose work I'd known my whole life, who'd won Oscars, who'd made the studios, God knows, billions of dollars, Mm. probably both of them, you know, was just like a regular guy and was open to ideas from the outside. And I actually think that's probably the secret of his success is that he finds collaborators like his cinematographer since Schindler's List, I believe, Janusz Kaminski, Gary Rydstrom, who like Gary Rydstrom seems like you know, you've brought a gun to a dice game because he's like this weapons grade sound designer from the days of yore. But it was interesting hearing him talk about how he went about sound designing uh, the post, for instance, with the Meryl Streep character, making it really like finding the right high heel on marble sounds for her because part of the story is about a woman in a, in a world that was dominated by men mm. and to figure out sounds that could uh, relay that and you go like god damn it these people are freaking geniuses i mean that's why they are where they are michael Kahn was there and here's the crazy thing by the way about the post if anyone sees the post at the q a janelle asked him so how far along were you with the post a year ago i know it came together quickly and he said a year ago i hadn't even read the post i didn't even know that it was a thing hmm. and he said that he didn't even read the script until this past february february of 2017 and since then they put together Meryl Streep and Tom Hanks, who'd never appeared on screen together in a movie, <laughs> pre-produced, produced, edited, and released that movie. By the way, this entire time they've been in post on Ready Player One, which is his next film. That's right. Yeah, that, which is uh, uh, pretty popular, available as a book on MP3, pretty popular book. It's I, I know it just because uh, we took a long car trip and my wife played it in the car. <laughs> hey, uh, you know, here, here's what I think is actually really impressive about Spielberg, and I don't think a lot of people pay much attention to is that if you go to IMDb and you look them up, just the sheer amount of 
volume of work that he has going on at any given time between being a director or an executive producer, it's kind of mind boggling. So just 2017, 2018 listed here is uh, multiple TV series that have all had of all aired, but then plus a whole bunch that have not yet, including stuff like the talisman, which I have to ima- imagine is based on the Stephen King book. And then like uh, a new Animaniacs TV series, another Jurassic movie, a Jurassic world movie, which I know they've already got teaser trailers in the theater an untitled men in black spinoff and an untitled Indiana Jones project. That's a pretty damn full dance card. That's yeah. a lot of stuff. And you know, I mean, you wonder how much of that is he personally putting his hands on, but I would imagine that, you know, his fingerprints are on everything. I would imagine that he's he's got a a, or a serious opinion about it. Otherwise, he wouldn't put his name to it. That's true. Well, and actually he's got something also called Robopocalypse, which yeah. uh, <laughs> which I don't know what that is, but he's the producer of it. Well, a friend of mine actually uh, was a post producer on a TV series that Spielberg executive produced. I don't know if I should name the name of it, so I won't. Mm. But he said that Spielberg would be in the edit bays, that he would be in there looking at every episode and giving notes and stuff. What was cool also about Spielberg, by the way, is. I mean, it's at the Directors Guild. So in order to have been in that screening, you had to be on whatever mailing list would get you into a DGA screening in L.A. So, you know, you're not like going to Skid Row and inviting people in. But obviously everybody in that room was a giant fan of his. When the Q&A was over, the DGA stage has like steps that go down into the audience. He went down those steps and talked to anyone, took selfies with anyone, autographed whatever. Until the DJ literally had to turn the lights off. Wow. He was he was there for the fans and he seemed to genu- genuinely be liking it. And by the way, this is the day after his birthday. Wow. So and we sang happy birthday to him. Janelle made the audience sing happy birthday to him. <laughs> and he was like, he was like, no, please don't. And Janelle was like, no, do this for us. We need well, this. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Ben, that I think he was pretty open. There's people who I know who are actors and such on Facebook and they were taking photos from that screening and uh, one of them posted a thing saying like oh yeah I went and saw Steven Spielberg and they had a photo with Janelle and Steven on stage during the Q&A and I wrote but did you meet Janelle Riley (laughs) anyway Janelle Riley the real person to meet and then two nights later she invited us to a screening of uh, all the money in the world and I hung out with the writer for like 10 minutes and talked to him nice that was that's an, probably its own story in and of itself, maybe for a later for a episode. different podcast. But, right. but just the whole the whole saga of how they reshot a hundred percent of the J. Paul Getty scenes with Christopher Plummer in that movie, and they did it in nine days. Holy crap! On multiple continents. Nine days. Nine days. And by the way, uh, okay, so it's going to be for this podcast. Fuck it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so so Ridley Scott, who is eighty, yeah. And also Christopher Plummer, yeah. also 80. Yeah, so no, no, no spring chicken. Yeah, they're replacing all of the Kevin Spacey scenes, yeah. all the formerly Kevin Spacey scenes with J. Paul Getty in there uh, with Christopher Plummer. They did it in nine days. And I was like assuming going in that it was like, oh, they probably got a lot of his stuff in close up and cut around it. No. No, I also they, thought, they rebuilt it. I also thought maybe they green screened it. And I was told that there was one shot green screen in the whole movie. Wow. I asked the writer how many pages they had to reshoot. He didn't know off the top of his head. I'm going to guess it was in the neighborhood of 40 or 50 pages. That's, that's, that's huge. That's, that's massive. That's an hour long TV series. Exactly. And they did it in, they did it in nine days and with Christopher Plummer. And I was thinking like, okay, so like Mark Wahlberg and all these other people, they, they know the story already. They've already made this movie once, so they don't have to get up to speed. But Christopher Plummer, it's like, hey, are you available to do this? And then like a week later or, They're doing it. Yeah. or a couple weeks <laughs> yeah. later, he has to wrap his head around the arc of this character yeah. and, you know, just kind of shows what a pro Christopher Plummer is. But you'd never know that they did what they did. It seamlessly cut in 
and it's long dialogue scenes, you know, walk and talk, two shots, steady cam stuff, big stuff in big sets. 10 years from now, when we've forgotten about the scandal mm. and you watch this movie, it's just going to feel like that's just the movie. That's a monumental achievement to be able to pack all of that into such a small period of time. So Ben, it's that time of the show again. Which time would that be? <laughs> it's time for me to say a few nice words about our sponsors, Hot Rod Cameras and Aerie. Well, Hot Rod Cameras, we all know. But yeah, what, what, what do I have to say about Hot Rod Cameras? But Aerie, Hot, Hot Rod Cameras feeds your children. I mean, that, like that's 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 the long and the short of yeah. it. So okay, so Aerie, uh Last time we spoke about the Sky Panel. Yes, the Sky Panel, especially the the new biggest version of the Sky Panel. Uh, there was a lot of publicity recently with uh, Roger Deakins shooting uh, the new Blade Runner movie, utilizing over a hundred sky panels to light some sequences in that movie. Well, uh, of course, The Last Jedi just came out recently. And if you needed a further endorsement of how the sky panel has changed the way people are working, over a thousand sky panels were used. So I bet in the new Avatar movie, over 10,000 sky panels. It seems like there's a one-upmanship that's going on. Yes, so Blade Runner, we had 100. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Sky panel arms race. It it totally depends on how big of a stage and how big of a space and what you have to do. And there's other ways to, of course, light besides using a sky panel, but sky panel is a particularly flexible tool. Well, if you wanted if you wanted an endorsement from a big movie out there, it'd be really hard for you to go beyond like Blade Runner with 100. But uh, Last Jedi... Just threw down like 10 times that. So a thousand sky panels. So the, on that the gauntlet has been dropped. Yes. For the next production, the next avatar or something who wants to go with, yeah. who wants to 10 X that they want to 10 times. I think back it's to like, that. it's going to make Ari really happy when, when <laughs> someone goes, we need 10,000 sky panels. It's I think a, prov- a power plant. It's a proven fact that the more sky panels you have in your, in your kit, the better your movie is just objectively. <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure Ari would agree. Yeah. So, all right. And Thank, thanks, Ari. Thanks, Ari. I really appreciate the uh, I really appreciate all your support <laughs> for 2017. So, so Ben, who is on the show today? Uh, today on the show, we're very, very proud to present uh, Shalada Bruce Christensen. Christensen. You said it great. That I, was really good. I said it twice. One of them has got to be right. No, it's right. You, okay. you did it. The second right. time was right. second time was right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, sorry, Shalada Bruce. Christensen. Yes. So she's a Danish cinematographer and she got her start with Thomas Vinterberg. She made a big splash with a movie called The Hunt, which brought her over to the States. She did Fences for Denzel Washington. She did Girl on a Train. And most recently she shot Molly's Game for Aaron Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin's first directorial effort. We've both seen Molly's Game and maybe I liked it more than you did, but I thought it was fantastic. Why you gotta, why you gotta do me like that? Oh, you didn't. No, I liked it a lot. Okay. (laughs) uh, Maybe I was just so enthusiastic about it up until that point. It was the best thing I'd seen this year. So now the screen. Oh, but now you've seen better stuff. So no, well, (laughs) here's the thing. It's a really strong. You throw me under the bus. I throw you under the bus. Yeah. Well well done. Well done. I appreciate it. I think it's great. And and I think what makes it interesting to me is, you know, when I think of Aaron Sorkin, I think of like this precision of language. That's just amazing use of language and i feel like she finds the visual equivalent of the precision of it oh yeah and and it looks amazing and i, I think it's a fun movie from beginning to end I, I i really liked it it is a great movie so uh we'll stop talking about it and get into the interview here is shalotta bruce christensen the cinematography podcast interview 
Shalana, thank you very much for coming here. Thank you for having me. Welcome to Hot Rod Cameras. So I want to start with my stock question that I ask every cinematographer. I believe that cinematographers either start with an image or start with lighting. When you're reading a script, when you're planning a shoot, you're thinking about the lighting and finding a composition inside that lighting, or you're thinking about the composition itself. Do you start in a specific place? You can also tell me that my question's off base. I actually don't start with that seeing that frame or or being specific, having a specific idea for lighting as I first read mm-hmm. the script. I'll spend time with the story for a long time before I get any ideas. Maybe that's a bad thing. I don't know. But I read the script several times. First time I read a script is just for me to read and understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I read it again. And that, I think that's that. the second time I read a script, that's where ideas comes up as a just as a as a style as an overall what is this what is the pace of it what Mm -hmm. is the you know is it like one scene is slow the next one is needs you know more shot so it's more an overall feeling for for the images and the moving images what is it is it a static movie is it like a steadicam movie like the overall feel i don't break it up in like specific shots or lighting that early on comes later so it kind of hits you as an abstraction like like how it's going to feel more than anything yeah yeah it's very it's very abstract it's a feel it's a i can always like it was some scripts like it refers to like one photograph that i've seen it's like mm-hmm. it's abstract i'm normally sent the script um by producers you know mostly through the the agencies or the agents and and i get a script and i read it and and just to feel this is something for me because i think it's also you know, you might have desires to work with a specific director or a director working with a with a cinematographer, but if you don't connect yeah. with the script, then it's very well that you want to work with that specific person. But so I, I, and that really works for me that you read the script without at all thinking about the. Of course, you know who's going to be directing it, but yeah. first of all, it's about what do you think about the the story. So, with that in mind, can you give me an example of a script that you were given? Like maybe let's let's just say fences. Um, so you're given fences and, uh, what kind of imagery, like what was, what was the process that went through your head while you were kind of coming up with the first burblings of a plan of what you were going to, how you were going to shoot a show like that? Fences is a very good example because I, I had to read that script several times (laughs) and I remember reading it again and again and just coping with the story in my Mm. head, just coping with the whole, the setting, the period the 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 50s the the culture the religion the bringing up families there's so many other questions that i and and things to to learn about in a script that it took me a long time actually to get to the images because i don't know how you can photograph and visualize a story if you haven't yet put all these pieces into place not you have to understand everything but it it needs to sit with you to and also for, for that script meeting Denzel Washington, obviously, who's been living yeah. with this project for, for many years because he yeah. did the play as well. Obviously, it was a very important factor. Well, and also, he, I'm sure, had to rely on your eye a whole lot for that because he's in it. So he needs to know, like, you know, obviously you can have playback, but you're not going to do that after every take. So so he needs to know that you have a, a stranglehold on what he's going for. Sure, absolutely. And and I feel that I did have that trust Um Denzel is, he's directing through characters, but also he knows about the technical um, achievements. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes I'd be setting up something and very often that movie we use zooms because that story was very much about not tracking in, not moving in, but kind of sucking into somebody. So the, this zoom was very important. 
and you know I would do I would get on with the stuff and set it up and things and he'd be busy with directing everybody and then he would go back in we'll do a take and we'll go back he would go back in and he'd come out it's all great it's all great but you seem too fast you gotta slow you know he'd have <laughs> like the he he'd he'd have the overall directions all the time. So, you know, I, I would get on with stuff. He would rely on me to do things, but he would always know the pacing of things or if something wasn't from the right angle or... So he'll keep... He'll, he, he would keep track on me. <laughs> so when you were given that script, what was it that caught in your head? How did you how did you find the look? How did you find the way that you wanted to shoot it? For that one, it was very much through the conversations with Denzel because he was very truthful to the, to the story, to the to the play and to August Wilson and his his screenplay. I also went to Lincoln Center and saw the and saw the play on the little screen that you could. So you're seeing the play and understanding the you know the whole the movement of the characters and how all these because there's a lot of words in that script. There's a, that's what drives it. Yeah. And you know it's a lot of for a long time characters would be sitting or most would be sitting and and Troy Denzel's character would stand up and walk back and forth. So. It slowly became clear to me and to Denzel that the decision of when you move and when you when not to move that little uh, tiny decision was very very important. So it's very kind of minimalistic. Mm-hmm. It's very you know shot to stay with the with the player with the with the characters, and then when you move, it's a big deal. So that kind of developed slowly. Let's go back and talk about just kind of your background and your education. You're from Denmark. What first got you interested in cinematography? What was the the first bite on that? Photography became interesting to me before cinematography, probably because I didn't actually know or think about that there was cinematography or somebody had to do the moving images. So I started out just um, kind of boring or maybe stealing my my parents little 35 millimeter camera it's, it's borrowing when it's borrowing yeah. <laughs> you gave it back right? they, they i didn't it. always tell them about it but <laughs> and i would like do like seven or eight or ten photographs and they'd be a little story around the farm i grew up at a dairy farm in denmark my dad is a farmer my mom is a hairdresser and nobody i know nobody in the film industry at that point but soon after that i am um, my dad sold another farm to the film composer and his wife was a film uh, director and uh, they loved horses, had horses, I had horses. And so I started riding uh, with this gentleman. And he was started telling me, you, you know, there was actually a job where you, where you tell stories, like, you know, in films. So that was my first, of course, yeah, I see. Um, so <laughs> I, I kind of learned about the job. I, I seeked it earlier than I knew about it, I think. I mean, like growing up in a rural area like that, like what was your access to movies and television and stuff like that? TV. And once in a while, go to the village cinema um, that would have Danish movies or once in a while, you know, the big American movies. But that wasn't all that often. It was it was mainly TV. Interesting. Well, and when I think of, of Denmark and film, obviously, I think about like the Dogma 95 people and you've worked with, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correct, Thomas Vinterberg. That had to have swept up because like your earliest credit, I think was around 2003, or at least on IMDb it was. That was before film school. I graduated in 2005. Oh, wow. So my first feature film was in 2009, 10, maybe, Submarino. With Thomas Vinderberg. So when you're coming up in the film industry, how large did that group of filmmakers loom in Denmark specifically? Because I can tell you in the independent world in America, they loomed pretty large. It was huge. 
It was huge in Denmark. And we were aware that it was a big deal in the rest of the world, which I think was was new to Denmark, that people <laughs> were looking at us, you know. So it was a it was a big deal and it got a lot of attention. And we watched those movies again and again. So obviously that was like they, all those movies came out ninety five, you know, I just started getting interesting in, in, in the movie business. So I think that was kind of that feels like childhood um films for me were you already kind of like on a trajectory to be a filmmaker when that stuff started kind of mushrooming worldwide you know the like the, the dogma movement but i mean obviously lars von trier was a big deal long before then even definitely but not as a cinematographer i think as a you know the cinematographer dream didn't start it, the dream was in me but i don't think i believed in it myself or or believe that the outside world will believe in that until mm-hmm. um, much later. Um, so I knew that that was my dream, but I wasn't really thinking that was ever going to happen. And and I wasn't sad about that. I just like, well, I'm going <laughs> to do something else. I mean, obviously, I know from America and being in a small town in America and wanting to make films, but like how far removed from it did you feel like when you first had the thought of maybe I could experiment with this or try this? How far removed did you feel from the ability to see that goal through? Very far. There is a long way from Sverbo, which is the village with <laughs> maybe 45 people in Denmark to, I mean, to here, Hollywood. Yeah. But even to Copenhagen to make movies in there, because obviously in Denmark, the, the industry isn't all that big. Yeah. And you got to know, just like here, it's just a smaller scale, but you got to know somebody or have something to show. For me, it was more about just getting, not necessarily making the movies, but just getting closer to observing it was a big step so again our our neighbors who was living at this farm Hansik Philip the film composer was also a teacher at the Danish film school so they recommended me I could come in and become a runner is what we call it in Denmark the the, the girl or the boy that gets the coffee and and whatever is needed for the film school films so that was a that was my first big step you know just to get near the students who were studying uh-huh. to become um Filmmakers. My understanding of the Danish film industry is virtually nothing, but I imagine that uh, no film industry could support such innovative, interesting, and possibly not outrageously profitable movies without some kind of state financing. Is that is uh, is that a, is that how it works in Denmark? Yes, it is. It's it's and and so how does tax money? You know, I'll see a movie like uh, the Five Obstructions or something, which mm-hmm. which is also another Lars von Trier thing, and it's just like, how does this movie even get to exist? But I always assumed that there had to be some kind of a some kind of grant system in the in the country. There is. There's a, the Danish Film Institute is the is the one and I don't want to say the one and only place because it's also the TV channels that that has has money. But that's the only way, really. It's not like you you know we we don't have the studios, we don't have private funding as such. You go to the Danish Film Institute and then they have a program that you got to get the scripts developed and then they, so you know they kind of rule that part a little bit and because. That's obviously tax money and it's uh, the government is is part of deciding all the rules and everything. There's a scheme and you have to fit into that. But, you know, Lars von Trier is is um, probably one of the directors in Denmark that can that can do things differently because <laughs> well, he's yeah. proven to make movies that um, travels worldwide and, and is seen by a lot of people. So he there are special rules for him, I think. Did uh, being involved with the Danish Film Institute or did you get involved with the Danish in- Institute? Did it in any way, did that push your career forward or? No. No? No, 
no, I never got um, I never got that far in Denmark. I, after you know, trying to make the best coffee at the film school in Denmark, <laughs> I I I did start dreaming a little bit more about the cinematography and observing the boys and the lights mm. and knew that that was where my. But I was too scared to tell anybody. So you know, production was was the much easier route. So um, I try to do that really well. But anyway, there's a there's a great place in Denmark called the European Film College, which is basically um, an eight months course that you can apply to. And it's it's 100 students, it's 50% Danes and 50% foreigners. You apply and it's it's like a playground. You know, they have cameras, they have some simple editing systems, um, sound, you do small courses throughout the eight months. So basically you can go there and just meet people who knows nothing. You don't have to have a record of or some education prior to that. Just to go and get a feel for, well, if I got a real camera in my hands, what can I do? So I applied to that and um, and that cost some money. So I went out working a lot uh, with making food for at an elderly home and <laughs> and at the bar at night and whatever um, to get into this. And that was the first time I felt I can, you know, I feel like I, I have something to do with this camera. Um, so that was like my first... Is that the first time you had like an actual film camera in your hand and you yeah, were yeah yeah what yeah. kind of what kind of cameras are you using at Oof, this point I can't even remember some it was digital it was um, digital oh. yeah um, and from there I met my boyfriend who is now my my husband mm-hmm. and we were very much in love so after after the school we went out and did a little uh, short film together and with that we applied to both the Danish film school and somebody's told us that there you know the National Film and Television School in in London was an amazing school and there's a lot of Danes that applied there so we also applied both of us to that school mm-hmm. and which one did you get into the National Film and Television School in in the UK oh nice so so from the making coffee we made one little short film, applied for this European Film College. And so so it was studying. I never got to the, the film institute because that had to be professionals. You know, that's yeah. that's there's other little programs that you can go to in Denmark, but I, but I never got that far. So at this point, are you focused entirely on cinematography or are you still because you have you have a couple directing credits, I mm. think, on IMDb. Like, are you are you weighing directing cinematography or are you like mostly on a on a path for cinematography? I am. Definitely on a path for cinematography. The directing was more if you know if we were we were doing a little short film and I I love writing and I I was I've always been I've always been writing little scenes since I was a kid um, and I'm a terrible writer really <laughs> seriously very it's just a skill like any other you just got to keep just at a it skill but I love doing it and anyway so I had these little scripts and I wanted to photograph them so we asked our friends or our fellow students to to direct it and they would read it go like that's not that's never going to be a film what does this mean and we ended up directing it just in order to shoot it and for my husband Mm -hmm. at that time boyfriend to make the sound design just that we could practice that so we so we were directing it just to Mm -hmm. get it going but even then you were mostly pointed at being a cinematographer it was all to practice cinematography so you go to the school in london and at a certain point you go back to denmark right so we, yeah, we got into the film school and, um, and that is, is actually at the end of the course that uh, we win this little um, Kodak commercial competition in, at the school. And the price was, you know, 35 millimeter uh, stock and camera and you could do a little short film. And so at the end of the study, we go and make a short film that 
and that we both direct together. Because again, I have this little script and nobody understands what that, because <laughs> it's so badly written. Uh, but that little film wins a lot of awards and uh, um, cinematography awards, but also best upcoming directors in the UK. So suddenly here was the question, well, what are we going to, well, people thought, well, it's because you want to direct. And so I we put that short film aside and I just try to focus really on cinematography. So I had to make a, that early on, I was like facing the, you know, people questioning, yeah. what do you want to do? And I was, my answer was from my heart that I wanted to do cinematography. A uh, s- slight diversion, but sometimes people ask us about film school and I went to film school, Ilya went to film school. Uh, what are your opinions? Because obviously today, in this day and age, you could go buy a DSLR and have Adobe Premiere Resolve Absolutely. or whatever on a laptop. You can make as many films as you wanted. Do you still see a value in film school? It depends on who you are. I love studying. I love the the books and I love the seminars and I love the easy access to, you know, to seminars, to people coming in, you know, doing a masterclass. I get so excited about seeing how people and and. But then again, I agree. I think you can do that just working on set. You, you study, you know, observe, you know, cinematographers mm-hmm. working on set. So I think there's no right or wrong. There's no better way than, I think it depends on who you are. Um, yeah. And I love that studying it. I love the the books. I loved writing a dissertation um, about Ingmar Bergman and Persona and, <laughs> you know, really studying in the, the, the framings and, being a little arty about um, the films. I, so, it, is, it is good to have license to be a little artsy. Yeah, it gives room to yeah. process and to understand who you are. I think that's the luxury somehow is that you can study your own eye. Obviously, if you're working on set, you've got to deliver what's expected uh, from you. So I don't know if it's a tougher way, but, but maybe it's longer somehow. To go to film school or to not go to film school? To, to work your way up. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I don't know. When you go back to Denmark, are you able to fall in and and are you able to get jobs shooting at that point? Are you able to get work? Are you able to reconnect with your old network that's still there? I feel I am. You know, it's it's. Um, I think you and I. I truly believe this. You you come from a place and your culture is who you are, and who you are is also who you are when you go outside you know that's what I bring part of me and and my culture to to when I make movies in the states so I don't think you change or that I've changed that much Mm. Um, so I think it's easy to go home and be a Dane looking at lighting working with the limited equipment compared to what we have on on studio movies because that's where I grew up that's what I that's that's how I learned did you consciously go back to Denmark after college or did you just start working for uh, Danish filmmakers no we we actually stayed in the UK for for three or four years afterwards um, just making short films for for three years earning no money <laughs> wait there's not money in short films Man, <laughs> but you're doing it wrong I know but show the millions I that I loved I've, every single minute of it there's no money in short films there is no money but there is a lot of education I think that was just my personal investment in continuing studying, really, because the two, you know, the National Film and Television School is an MA. At that point, it was two years, which is not a long time. So I, I don't think I felt ready even to to go out and call myself a cinematographer because I went to film school. So I think those three years was like a self educational kind of process. And then at the end, going back to Denmark wasn't a decision. It happens that Thomas Vinderberg and his producer are 
making this little movie and they wanted to collaborate with some first time filmmakers. Oh, wow. And they somehow pick up this one and only showreel that I've left, I think almost accidentally at, at my friend's desk and they happened to pick that one up and put it in a pot with the 30 others or how many other DPs that they were um, looking at. So I get a call and unexpected because I didn't turn my showreel in. I just heard from my friend that Thomas Vinderberg was interviewing. Oh, wow. Uh, I know, interviewing um, young cinematographers. And I thought, I missed it as always. I missed it. <laughs> and I'm over here and I'm doing another short film that I'm not sure. Anyway, I get this call and they say, well, we've seen your showreel. Would you like to um, come and meet Thomas Vinderberg? And I was like, Excuse me, <laughs> I'm a big, I'm I'm the biggest fan, sure. So that's why I went home to meet Thomas, and um, I did the worst interview ever. I, I, apparently not. <laughs> apparently not. No, I don't know. I got the I got the I got the job. So um, how how big did he loom uh, in in Denmark back then? I I knew him from the Celebration primarily, which is possibly one of the most moving films I've ever seen. Uh, I'd also seen It's All About Love, which I saw at Sundance years and years ago when it, when it first came out. But how big of a name is he in Denmark? Big. He's 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 definitely one of the biggest um, directors, was and still is um, in Denmark. So he, he's, yeah, I mean, he's, for me to go and work with Thomas Vinderberg in Denmark was unbelievably uh, it was impossible. It was like, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I've been studying his film, watching his films. I felt very, <laughs> very lucky. So like, what was his process working with you on that? Was was because he was looking for someone with less experience at that time? Was he trying to mentor people or was he kind of looking for more of a beginner's mind? Yeah, I think it was the, what I understood was that it was like, for fun, let's go back to scratch and be be almost like film school students and, and make that kind of movie. Because sometimes... It was a choice. It's like he wanted to go back and, and make things simple or, you know, and it was a low-budget project. And that was the whole idea was to find people who were trained in making, you know, being creative with four lights. Mm -hmm. And that's what you are when you leave film school. You have, you know, two redheads and maybe a HMI if you're lucky. <laughs> and that was that project. And would you say that that was your big break? Was that like the big turning point for you as a cinematographer? Personally, absolutely. And, and that movie is... Probably one of my favorite movies. Maybe you do always have a special relationship to your first feature film. I don't know, but I loved every every moment of it, and I think it's a it's a wonderful film. It it did really well in Denmark, but it, it didn't really go outside the borders much. It was screened here and there, but not worldwide. Yeah, I don't know that it came out. I don't know that I saw it out here. I've heard of it because obviously I'm a fan of his work, but I don't always know how to track his stuff down. No, I don't think it went to the states. I remember it got into um, the Berlin Film Festival. Mm -hmm. Berlinale. Big deal. And a uh, big deal. It was a huge deal. Probably and we were very the biggest proud. biggest festival in the world, probably. <laughs> and the Europeans loved it. But I remember we were so disappointed because them, all them, um, I think Hollywood uh, Hollywood Reporter and the variety was, because there was a baby dying in the movie. Oh. And um, that wasn't popular at all. So I think we, we got about the lowest. In America, um, all of our. stars you can 100% of our fictional babies have to live in America. Sorry. Yeah. 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 So we learned that. <laughs> Learn that the hard way. Yes. That's, yeah, whatever. It's a good movie still, but. Also, don't kill any of the dogs. If you don't, kill, don't, you, no, we did you, we did that too. You killed the dog and the baby. It, it, and we, were called, we killed the baby in the submarine and we uh. killed the dog in the hunt. 
you were pregnant while you were making the movie? Yeah, so... My wife is we, pregnant right now, and so the idea of her shooting a, a feature is probably... A handheld movie. Yeah, that was... It was... But you know what? It wasn't... It was just right, I have to say. But it, it, it wasn't quite planned. But, you know, I'm the... Nothing better than that could happen. Little Vera came, but but basically, um, it wasn't planned. I I we did some I did some marina with Thomas, and then he asked me to do the hunt, and then I figured out that I was pregnant, and I had to drive to the summer house and knock the door and say, "I'm so sorry, you know, I I I know you'd probably." And he was like, "You're pregnant." And I was like, "Uh, yeah," and and I I get it. I get that that's not gonna work. And he's like, "Well, what when are you gonna give birth?" And I was like, "January." And we're going to shoot into late December. Um, so he, so I was like, <laughs> I, I get that's too big a risk. And he said, well, we could maybe have somebody standing by. How do you feel? And I was like, I feel good. Well, what's the problem? And I said, well, if you don't have a problem, I don't have a problem. He said, I don't have a problem. We, we just better have somebody maybe that can stand in if something happens. And so that's what producers thought, good idea. So we called around and... Somebody said yes to, they need to do commercials, but they could stand by if I had a problem. And then. And you were even operating your own camera? Operating, handheld. Handheld. How big of a camera are you handholding while you're pregnant? Alexa. That's uh, not a light camera. For, no. Ergonomic, so though. We, we, we made this easy rig. So we de rigged the easy rig so it could get underneath and actually worked a little bit as a support. I have some pictures. Man, I went to set once like a little sick and felt like I'd want to like run a race. Like, I can't believe that you did that. That's crazy. I know. And then, uh, so I was the worst at giving birth because, as you can imagine, I missed every single uh, birth uh, <laughs> chat that you're supposed to have with doctors. So yeah. I did nothing. So, I, whatever, two, three weeks later, I turned up and, and, uh, and they say, and I, I said, I, I don't know anything about this my first child. I, I, I've been so busy. I don't know. And they said, well, you got to do what we say. And, and so when they finally <laughs> said, you can push now, I pushed and pushed and they screamed, you're squeezing, you're killing the baby. Because they were like, well, how did you get all these muscles? You're like, and I was like, the easy rig, obviously. <laughs> I built this because all the weight goes on the hips. Yeah. So doing these months of filming with an easy rig <laughs> created all these muscles that I was not supposed to have when giving birth. <laughs> so this baby took forever to get out and she was tiny, but I was the worst. I nearly <laughs> killed her. Oh, man. Yeah. Well. <laughs> but there she came. That's a, that's actually a great war story, but I don't know if <laughs> you might have another one. That's great. <laughs> All right. So I need to see the hunt, clearly. You need to see the hunt. And please tell me what you think. All right. I will. So you said the hunt was the thing that kind of launched the rest of your career. It definitely brought the work outside of Denmark because the, the movie was, especially in the States, people seemed to really like it and, and a lot of people saw it. I know after, you know, when I had my first chat with the agents that I with now i know that was one of the movies that they spoke about as well after the hunt i did a, a movie with thomas in the uk called far from the madding crowd mm -hmm. so obviously that was a fox searchlight movie and so that that too also kind of brought it outside of denmark but but the hunt for sure was a big step and also because it um i want a, a price in can for that movie and so so suddenly kind of do opened it. doors yeah so did it go basically from doing those films to fences no, then um, Anson Corbine oh, that's right, called that's right. and um, we went to Toronto. That was a great experience to work with him. And on the first day of shoot, all these babies, uh, I felt really ill. 
So, and I thought like that's the prawns from last night, it's the prawns, it's just the prawns. And then the next day I felt really ill and I was trying to find corners in the snow where people weren't gonna <laughs> go so I could, <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, and it kept going so I thought I better do a test. And obviously you sign on those movies that you're not pregnant and I had signed that I wasn't pregnant. And uh, yeah, I was pregnant. Thinking that there was only one, of course, as you do. Mm -hmm. So I was really ill, not really telling anybody because I thought they didn't hire a pregnant woman. Uh, they hired a woman, but not a pregnant woman. And I, maybe they should know. So so I thought I can't bother them with that now. But I actually felt so ill not knowing that there was two. And it's apparently double up on the illness and the sickness when there's two babies. Oh, my God. So we didn't realize that so we got back to Denmark like three months later and the Doctors freaked out because I obviously hadn't done any of the scans and everything that you need to do when there's <laughs> twins. So, so you I, shot that whole movie pregnant. Oh yeah, and then went back to Denmark. And then went back to Denmark. Realized there was twins, and then I thought that's the end of. <laughs> that was fun, but maybe it just <laughs> stops here. Three. Is um, and I have to say, I did not film a movie uh, two weeks before giving birth to twins. That was that was a load. Um. So I'm breastfeeding and thinking that's the that breastfeeding and breastfeeding and breast for eight months. And the agents called and says, um, there's this movie produced by Steven Spielberg. Uh, and I was like, okay, <laughs> surely that's not going to be for me. And they said, well, you know, they, they'd seen The Hunt and um, at least they'd, you know, they'd like to just have a chat, just a general chat. So don't fly over, just, you know, do a Skype meeting. And, and my husband said, oh, God, you, you know, just have a little glass of white wine it's you know it's gonna be fine because i've obviously been pregnant and yeah. breastfeeding so i hadn't had wine for a long time and i had that much and i got it was really... about two fingers of white wine just <laughs> yeah. for, for the listeners and i was really drunk and so i did that interview <laughs> and apparently it worked out who was um, the interview with was it tate taylor director okay. tate taylor mark platt producer mm -hmm. and um uh jared leboff also producer on the movie and um, they flew me over a couple of days later and I had a meeting in person. And it, doing that first interview on Skype, I was like, I started the interview going, yeah, I've just been breastfeeding, but I'm fine. You know, they they sleeping. So, and they were like, what, excuse me? It was like, uh, I got twin babies. I hope somebody told you. They thought that was fine. So they hired me on Girl on a Train and we went over. Twins were like 10 months so, so my dear husband obviously oh man yeah oh man <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's parallels that i was noticing specifically between girl on a train and molly's game in that you're filming people who are uh lying or deceiving or dissembling or trying to lead people in a different direction how do you approach material like that how do you show what someone's not trying to show you i don't, I don't know if i'm asking this right but to me there's there's a way that the camera works in both of those films that to me seems very even though it's moving and working differently there's some parallel to that am i crazy no i think um no you're not crazy I think I am maybe, but I I think every movie and every script is different. You know, you, you, you it may be a similar feel or, but, you know, for example, for Girl on a Train, there was a big challenge because he's a protagonist who's sitting, who's passive for big parts of the movie. She's sitting in a train observing life outside the windows, observing this woman that she's getting obsessed with and... And she's basically 
trying just to waste her time pretending she's going to work and then traveling back again. But but time is a but she doesn't speak to anybody, and she's having all these thoughts that. And, and she remembers things, but we also have to tell that what she remembers isn't the truth. So there's a lot of storytelling in her mind that we don't have the words, you know, yeah. to. So for that, you know, that was obviously when you approach a story like that, you really have to create a style where people understands, you know, how she feels. So, you know, together with Tate and, and with Emily, we, d- we developed this this language, you know, she, for Emily's character, you know, she had a lot of handheld and we worked with different speeds of the cameras, the little things that just makes it different. In, and and in you shot audience. that on film too, right? You shot that on film. So I guess I love to think about images and moving images in a way that supports each character and that the little things, you know, uh, whether you choose to go handheld or you choose to shoot 28 frames per second and things that you shouldn't really see but that you feel is is really interesting to work with it hopefully people won't see it but they should feel it and and making those decisions and and getting those ideas are are the fun parts of preparation preparing a movie so i definitely want to talk about molly's game and uh this is something that i was unaware of but i was just told that that was aaron sorkin's first movie as director so what was it like working with someone who is a master of his craft but has never directed before? It was a challenge in many ways, but also a huge learning curve for me. I'm obviously a big fan and he is a genius with those words. And to work with somebody who knows the script that well and knows not just the words and what the scenes says or describes, but the pacing and the rhythm of a movie was amazing because I think that extra gear that you know a pace that I had to pick up and and deliver you know obviously together with the editors but first of all we had to create the the material was you know it took me a little while to figure out how do you because the, the way Aaron directs is it's not necessarily put the camera here, put that lens on. He's like, put the, put the right lens on. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and I love that. I love that he would trust me to pick that lens and he would for sure know if it, if it looked wrong or right or whatever. But it was, the conversations were always about the pacing. It's like, well, because I was set up this long shot and he's like, mm, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to cut out two seconds into that. You don't have to go all the way down that track. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the first week or so was was just learning about, oh, you know, the pacing of this movie has to be, it really has to go with each scene. And and so that was a huge learning experience for me, for sure. And I mean, like, so what's a day on set with somebody like Aaron Sorkin? Like, how are you, how actually, uh, screw that. How are you translating his like outrageous, almost fetishistic level obsession with language in individuals? Through the cast, mm-hmm. as well as, listening to his conversations with the cast because that's where he's very certain that's where he's his um the conversations about the script obviously comes you know with when he's discussing it with um with Jessica Chastain and Idris Elba and Kevin Costner and everybody you know I was always on set I was always trying to to overhear any conversations they had he was um, CCing me on their email chains. So I learned a lot from his conversations with the cast about 
these many words. So I just picked up everything, just like Molly is in the movie, you know, yeah. just observing, listening, learning, Googling, you know, so I think I just listened and also I, you know, I'd find a lot of references and show Aaron. So I just worked, build up the, the visual style somehow and presented it. The very first meeting I had with Aaron, he he told me what he what he saw and he was very clear that you know, there's the past, the LA style, and he said that, you know, the pacing of this and the look of it has, you know, it's darker, it's it's more moody, and, you know, it's it's fast moving. And he said the, the New York part, he wanted the contrast to be, you know, that that was more ordinary and, and that the, the pacing goes down. And so he gave those overall visual directions mm-hmm. and I and I would dig into to those directions. And so how did you translate it? Was it about lensing? Was it about camera movement and changing the kind of camera movement? Was it about the kind of coverage you were getting in there? Or I guess I'm, I'm kind of digging for like, what's the deep structure of how you translated Sorkin into pictures? Through the script. Mm-hmm. He knows the script and he, he would hang on to that. And so the script was our guide and, and was always with us somehow. So when he would discuss a scene, he had questions to a scene or we rehearse a scene, he'd have that script right in front of him and we'll read it out. And so I think we stayed very, very true, true mm-hmm. to, to the words. And he trusted me finding the feel or the mood or, or for those words. And I, you know, the, but it was, it was also a challenge because often it would happen that we would set up a shot and we'll do the shot. And he felt like, oh, we got it, you know, because I, he, he heard the words and he, and I was, and we did one other take and it's like, we got the scene and I'll be like, oh, you know, but I think we need, you know, we should have a little close up here and a little, I would add mm-hmm. more shots than he would necessarily want. And we certainly had those little moments where he would like, we got it, Shilada, it's fine. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, but you know, the voiceover is so long and in case you need and in case and it's like, I don't need any. So, but that's healthy discussions as filmmakers because that's my job is that I go and push for what I think is needed and and uh, we laugh about it now. And it, and it was, that was the process was exactly how much coverage do you need for, for this amount of voiceover. Um, but it was on the spot kind of work. It wasn't that we turned up with a specific shot list and, and... So you were kind of, were you making it up on the on the day to a degree? Yeah, to a degree. Certain things we would like the, the skiing stuff and we would have had a lot of meetings about it and spoke yeah. about it and some specific shots was discussed. And then everything around that was, was on the spot. Um, yeah, because that, I mean, it really feels like a very, like his scripts do, it feels like a very constructed thing. Like it feels really well thought out, like a perfect cuckoo clock where everything happens when it's supposed to. But because to. he knew the script so well and he knew his film so well, it was possible to work around, you know, having some specific ideas, but the rest of it developing around it because he would know if it was wrong. So he just had true north and you could sort of improvise. Is that a good word? We, we would we would improvise some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. But it felt totally right because the script was, it, it, it wasn't a script where, oh, we don't feel that scene today, we should do this alternative or this other alternative. And that was the scene. So, you know, I felt very prepared because I knew, I read the script and I discussed it with him and this is what we're doing. So the improvising parts was improvising in terms of lighting and, and you know, being you know okay this is the track that we're doing this is a shot that we're doing are we going to add this one that was all improvised but you can because the story was so clear to everybody yeah oh that's that's amazing 
Uh, well, I think that that's a great place to stop. Before we go, is there a place that people can find you online or uh, a place where they can see your work? So I do have a website, which is my name. I'm, I'm going to go home and update it. I'm going to go and put Molly's game on it. <laughs> you should. Like Instagram or Twitter or anything? Yeah, I just, you know what? It's every cinema, like it's embarrassing. I got on Instagram three weeks ago, I think. Okay. So I'm very proud. and um, So people can grow with you on Instagram now. Yeah, so I've just started out. I think I got 20 images. <laughs> and today I went crazy. I uploaded three images, maybe. Maybe 10, actually, today. Well, thank you very much for coming out. And thank you for uh, having hopefully me. we'll do a part two one day. Yes. So that was Shalada Bruce Christensen. Thanks a lot for coming out, Shalada. We hope we can bring you back because I feel like we only scratched the surface. That's right. We, there's tons more we can talk about. We'd love to have you back for part two. Yeah, we haven't done a part two with anyone yet. Rodney Charters will have to be the first one because, man, that guy. We could we could talk for two or more hours. So that I guy, could, easily. I could hours. do the Rodney Rodney Charters podcast. We could do the- <laughs> all we do is interview Rodney Charters every week. And just like this week, we're going to talk about, you know, taffy, saltwater taffy, and hear everything he has to say. And he'd, he'd be brilliant. <laughs> I love Rodney Charters. All right. So, so Ben, uh, war story time. So uh, we have a war story today from Sonny Bear. And uh, Sonny is someone I've known for a very long time. And uh, I actually, before I even really understood what a podcast was, I was on his short-lived podcast from, from many years ago. And uh, Sonny is this person that everyone who's in certainly the, the tech community of Hollywood knows. He uh, runs, for at least, you know, for probably the better part of a decade, maybe a decade now, the the maybe most widely respected and known about uh, camera tests, sort of like private camera tests where he tests all the different cameras for any given time for HBO. And uh, those who are very sort of lucky and in the know get to go see this camera test and geek out and learn all kinds of amazing stuff because I've he's, never been invited. Yeah, it's a, it's a, well, it's, it's a super geeky. Maybe one you know, day, maybe, technician. maybe if I hosted a podcast about cinematography, I'd get an invite to sit in the back of the room and keep my mouth shut. One <laughs> maybe year. now that you've interviewed him or something, you'll, yeah. Uh, yeah, he know. doesn't, he, he doesn't use the internet for anything. So that, that's true. He, he's a hard, he's a hard person to find. He is truly someone like you just, you have to know him. Anyway, Sonny is uh, an amazing individual, and we are so lucky to have him on a podcast because I don't think he's been on anywhere else. I think this is really... He's freaking brilliant, and here is his war story. And now, war stories. I remember when I was in college, I definitely had this strong sense of destiny. Like, I truly believed in some way that everything was preordained and that... If something was going to happen, it was just going to happen for you. And if it wasn't, there's really not much you can do to make that happen for you. I don't know where I got that from. I'm not sure that it was anything that was prevalent in my family. It's it's just how I felt. And then one day, three friends of mine decided to drive from Toronto to Montreal. We had no money, so we rented a car from this company called rent We got on the freeway, and I remember it was hazy, and it was a little rainy, and it was kind of overcast. But, you know, nothing nothing really major. And I was in the rear left side of the car, so I was right behind the driver. And I was looking out the window, and I was daydreaming a little bit, and all of a sudden, I saw a wheel driving next to us. This happened really in slow motion in my mind. I looked outside, and I was like, huh, there's a tire rolling next to the car. And I started thinking, well, that's really odd. How did the tire go fast enough to keep, we're in the third lane, we're in the fast lane of the freeway. How fast do you have to throw a tire for it to keep up with a moving vehicle? And right as I finished that thought, 
we started spinning. We went from the fast lane, spun across three lanes, made kind of like a donut, and fell off the right side of this cliff and started rolling down the hill, essentially. The car was spinning, spinning, spinning. And what was really bizarre, I don't understand how or why, I was the only one not wearing a seatbelt. As the car started spinning, I naturally just put my hands up in the air. I was holding the ceiling and the door at the same time. And every time we rolled, I just shuffled my feet. I don't think I knew exactly what was happening. It happened really quickly. All I knew is I had to stay upright. And so as the car was spinning, I would just shuffle, 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 and roll, shuffle, 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 and roll. And we rolled and rolled and rolled, ended up on the bottom of this ditch, and the ceiling flattened down. So the car collapsed on itself. My head was between my knees. All my friends were upside down. They were tied to their seatbelts and the driver was screaming, everybody was kind of panicked. And I was sitting there very quietly because I don't think I knew what was happening yet. I wasn't in a weird compromised situation. I was just squished a little bit, but I didn't feel hurt or anything. And everybody was tied in. And then all of a sudden we saw water starting to gush in. Out of nowhere, a crowbar comes into the side of the car, pries the door open, and starts pulling us one by one out of the car. It turns out there was a guy on the freeway right behind us and he saw us roll down into the ditch and he just pulled over and he had a truck and he had all these tools and he ran down, opened the door and pulled us out. All of us got out of the car. In the front, they had some glass scrapes and some cuts, but nothing major. I had nothing at all. My friend next to me had nothing at all. And we were just staring at the car. And I have pictures of that car. I mean, it is completely total. The axle is missing. The tires are missing. The doors are collapsed. The, the windshield is gone. I mean, the car is a wreck. It's completely total. And I remember, like, that was the moment I decided, you know, you can't wait. You just can't wait for things to happen. You've got to make things happen on your own. I don't know why that moment made me decide. I just realized there's a deterministic thing about something that you can do, which is in that moment, I decided to roll with the car. I felt like I actively participated in that moment. I started just doing everything I thought I had never wanted to do before. And it was mainly because I felt that I could decide, you know, that there was a, there's a certain deterministic thing that you have in your life that you have control over. After that event happened, everything I do, I do by will now. And it's how I make movies, it's how I, I do my shows, it's how I shoot. I just don't like leaving things to chance. Because I think if you leave it to chance, you may or may not succeed. If you do it yourself and you fail, you did it yourself. There's nobody else to blame. There's no ifs and buts. You did it your way and it didn't work and that's okay. Uh, to me, there's nothing worse than not doing it your way and failing. Because then you're always wondering, well, what if I had done it this way? And what if I should have done it that way? You know, I teach at UCLA and I tell my students, do it, just go out there and do it your way. Because you're much better off failing on your own terms. 
now, short ends. So for the short ends this week, we're talking about doing something slightly different. Instead of having an individual short end for myself and for Ben, we're talking about doing something together, you know, in the spirit of the holidays and the new year. (laughs) We're going to talk about storytelling in 2017 and sort of like, you know, where we're at, where we're going, what we liked, maybe what we didn't, what was polarizing. Uh, You know, I certainly have my thoughts. I mean, I watched a great movie last night. I think it uh, very much uh, will fit into this uh, award season sort of as a contender. What movie was that? It was Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri. I'm, I was testing to see if you'd get through the whole title. I, I did, but I think everyone's going to call it Three Billboards. I and think everyone's going to call it that. Hilariously shot in Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah, I was going to say, it's North Carolina for sure. It's, it's very. Like, it does not look anything like Missouri. I've never been to Missouri, but uh, I was surprised at how scenic it was. So that was directed by Martin McDonough, correct? Sure was. And who shot this? That was Ben Davis. And he's done like some really big shows, right? He did. He did like an Avengers movie, The Age of Ultron, and uh, you might... You know, remember the movie Kick Ass? He did that, and he's done a bunch of other things. He did a Layer Cake, and if you ever saw that one, so he's a Matthew Vaughn guy. He also did Doctor Strange, so yeah, and Marvel. So this is yeah, he's oh, and he's working on Captain Marvel right now. So yeah, he's uh, so doing ben, the- ben Davis keeps the lights on, and you know, to to kill time between giant tentpole movies, he uh, takes his soul to the bleach cleanse of making a cool independent film with some of the finest actors of our time. But back to Martin McDonough, he also did In Bruges and did Seven Psychopaths, which he He wrote and directed. He was the writer of that. Did he direct that as well? He wrote and directed both of those, I'm 90% sure. And he is, I believe, an Irish playwright. Hmm, That would make sense. In Uh, Bruges really felt like a play. He's just really good with coming up with kind of clever, snappy dialogue, but also having like a stronger underlying anchor of a theme to hold everything together. I I love his work. And I I hope this movie gets him to the next level. And I hope that that level is not a a Star Wars sequel or a superhero (laughs) movie or a Jurassic Park reboot. Well, you know, uh, as far as storytelling goes, though, it's a it's a great story and it's great from beginning to end. And uh, it's very emotional and has some of the best acting uh, really of the year that I've Woody seen. Woody Harrelson, Sam Rockwell. Yeah, there's all kinds of great cast in this. So, yeah, Frances McDormand, of course, like you knew she was great, but now you, you just got reminded of it all over again. The thing about Frances McDormand is I feel like she doesn't make a lot of movies. And when she ends up doing one, it's almost like a stamp of approval that it's good because she is one of our finest actors living today. I think it was a very strong year for women's roles. I think that uh, Jessica Chastain in Molly's Game so oh, yeah. is really fantastic. Totally amazing. And Molly's Game is in, you know, here's the thing. Uh, I don't I don't want to get too political and I'm not going to get political, but I think that the state of the world a lot of times dictates what is good in entertainment. And I think that that maybe is kind of the macro note is that we're in a tumultuous time in the world, no matter what side you're on of, of these things. And again, I'm not going to opine here. If you want to know my opinions, go to my Twitter feed and I'm not quiet about them there. You know, like I think that we're sort of living in America anyway, in like the Trump era of movies and movies like Molly's Game, I think kind of explore topics that I think are quite germane to that in movies like Steven Spielberg's The Post definitely explores uh, topics that are germane to the press and freedom of the press and first amendment rights and stuff like that. Nobody's really like tapped like a main line into the feeling that we're having here. I think it's going to be a horror filmmaker. I'm not being facetious, but I think that we're seeing stuff that resonates in that way. And also in light of like all of the me too movement and frankly backlash over previous Oscar years, we're seeing more diversity in front of and behind the camera. And those people are getting a chance to really shine. 
which means I'm out of a job. God damn it. I'm joking. I was, no one was giving me any Oscar. <laughs> you didn't have the job before. So I, I, yeah, no, they were like, yeah, they were like, should he? All right, Mel Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> there was other really great movies too. Uh, Shape of Water. I love Shape of Water. It's probably my third favorite Guillermo del Toro movie. And actually, I'm not going to spoil anything. When I saw it, I had some issues and I talked to my friend Bob DeRosa, co-creator of 20 Seconds to Live, and he had an answer for every one of my issues. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. Hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah, no, no. You just need to think about it after the fact and have someone explain it to you. He recontextualized. No, he recontextualized it for me. And I was like, oh, yeah, I didn't realize that that, you know, like I still have a couple of, of minor issues, but it's a beautiful film with an amazing, beautiful story. And honestly, one of the best creature suits ever. I, Tanya, Fantastic. Did you see I, Tanya? I did see it. Yeah. I, I, you didn't like it. I, I liked it. You liked it. Okay, great. I liked it. I thought it, I thought it was really enjoyable. I thought that, I thought that Tanya Harding's mother mm-hmm. was spectacular. 100% of the cast blew me away. I think that I wasn't in love with the presentation of the material. And I think that part of it is whatever baggage I bring to it as someone who like, you know, was alive during the nineties when this happened and I want a great dramatization of it. And I think that the tone they went for is not the tone I was hoping they would go for. It's a lighter tone. For yeah. Sure. It's a very, it's a pretty damn light tone, but it's well done. I mean, like I'm it not, well I'm not going to sit here and say it's bad. It's just, it wasn't what I was hoping it would be, which maybe says more about me than it says about the film. Yeah. I know you like it dark. Dunkirk. We've talked about Dunkirk and it's just one of the most beautiful films. It's weird though, because Dunkirk is a movie and I think this is by design, not designed to make you emotionally attached to any character. There's not a main character. It's an intentionally fractured narrative. But, but you, you buy in and go for the ride. You go for the ride with that movie. You, you, Oh yeah. I think storytelling in 2017 is really interesting and it's not just movies. I mean, we just named half a dozen movies here that are all, I think totally worthy of lots of attention and worthy of being seen in the best format you possibly can. In the case of Dunkirk, see it in IMAX if you can. I mean, or just a gigantic screen and with loud, loud sound. Well, I mean like they shot so much of that movie in IMAX that if you see it in IMAX, you will be seeing projected film in IMAX. And I, I must admit that if I saw the best possible digital or even 35 millimeter projection projected version of that would not bring across the, the minute detail that that movie has in its visuals. You know, I'm going to disagree just because of where I see a lot of people sit in the theater, but I'll tell you a lot of people aren't even sitting close enough to to have that experience, but I saw it in 70. I sat Mm -hmm. close. It was fantastic. I bet it was, it was great. great in 70. So, what about television shows? Television shows in 2017? I mean, this is like people are talking about us hitting p- peak television, like, you know, incredible number of series. I thought Mr. Robot, again, was really, really strong this year. Did you anything else uh, television um, wise? That you- a Mindhunter, the new David Fincher series, I thought was freaking amazing. Somebody pointed me towards a series that I think was originally BBC, but it's on Amazon Prime called Fortitude. Mm. That's kind of a mystery thriller police procedural something or other that takes place right near the North pole that, that slowly becomes one of the most nail biting horror stories I've ever seen on television. Hmm. And and they get huge actors to be in it, like Stanley Tucci and Michael Gambone and Dennis Quaid. And it's taken very seriously and it's, it's beautiful. looks amazing. I can't recommend fortitude to enough people. It's, it's so good. I hope they do a third season, but the two seasons they did are both, I think, masterpieces. I loved Patriot. I don't know if you ever saw Patriot. I didn't see Patriot. You told me all about it. Yeah, I know. It was my my short end. That's the problem is that there's so much great stuff. It's hard to even track it down. And sometimes it's hard to know what it is. And I wish that Netflix would change their marketing somehow because what happens with Netflix is just one day there's a new thing on Netflix. And sometimes there's a bit of a hoopla before it. Oh, I can't, I can't believe I forgot about it. Wormwood. 
Errol Morris's TV series on Netflix called yeah. Wormwood is edge of your seat. Brilliant. It's, it, it's like somebody went into a laboratory and made something designed for me to love it. It's <laughs> Errol Morris. Who's one of my favorite <laughs> filmmakers and documentarians since the first, the first, my gateway drug to him was fast, cheap and out of control, which I believe was in 1997 sure. shot by Robert Richardson. I just love his work. And it's about the CIA agent in the 1950s who threw himself out of a a 13th story window, I think, out of a hotel. Mm -hmm. And the government took responsibility and said that they had experimented with him using LSD without his knowledge. That's right. And his son, ever since then, up to today, has been trying to get clarity on what the hell happened around the death of his father in the 50s. Yeah. And so there's all this amazing wealth of documentary evidence that he has. There's a bunch of news conferences because he's had several... Uh, meetings in front of Congress and whatnot. And then on, on top of all that, they, th- you can't call it reenactments or recreations. I've shot stuff like that for murder among friends on investigation discovery. Mm-hmm. And we put our, we work our asses off on that stuff, but that stuff is always supporting voiceover of an interview. This, they just did full scenes with Peter Sarsgaard mm. and Tim Blake Nelson and Bob Balaban and like, just like amazing actors and it's in reenactments which is just but they're not it's just like fully scripted scenes Hmm. uh that support the whole thing errol morris has kind of described the series as an everything bagel and i agree it's Hmm. it's kind of got like a little bit of documentary a little bit of of straightforward narrative and if you like the way they shoot mr robot you will love the fascinating compositions and and shot designs and just the cinematography of the whole thing is beautiful. And even the interviews, Errol Morris has kind of jettisoned his trademarked Interatron, which is basically people looking right into the camera. And I believe he said that there are 10 cameras on all the interviews simultaneously. And so they're cutting around and every angle, every frame of it's, it's a documentary where every frame of it you would put on your wall. Hmm. All right. That's super high praise. Ben, what else uh, this year? What other alternative uh, storytelling formats? What 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 are you listening to? What are you what what what? I know you're a big podcast person. So what what podcast is well activated you? There's been a bunch of great podcasts over the last year, and I don't know if I've talked about them here, but like Crime Town blew me away, and they had a season of that. Gimlet, which is the company that made it, mm-hmm. um, Gimlet has made a bunch of really good ones. And so they made that. They made Mogul, which was about this hip hop mogul who committed suicide in 2012. And it's a it's kind of a, a history of hip hop, but also got kind of a conspiracy ish thing in it about like, why did he really commit suicide? Mm. And it's really well made. And then um, most recently, I came across a podcast called Heaven's Gate, which is being made by Stitcher. Mm interestingly so stitcher is producing a podcast stitcher yeah and they're trying to sell stitcher premium or stitcher prime or whatever they call it so you pay for stitcher and you can get the episodes a week ahead but since i'm an asshole i don't do that and i just am content to wait a week there's one more week of the podcast yet to go but it's about the heaven's gate cult which some people might remember in california they all committed mass suicide in 1997 mass suicide i think that there were like 30 something of them in this compound in San Diego. I call that mass. Yeah, yeah, well, definitely. It, yeah. But it wasn't like Jonestown where it was like hundreds. I think if they had more than three, it was mass. All <laughs> so, right. Yeah. I, we'll, we'll save that for our suicide podcast that yeah. we're working on. 
our suicide, uh, <laughs> our podcast where we talk about Merry Christmas. Ver- We're going to talk about suicide. Oh, I can, have. Can you work castration in here too? Oh, there's <laughs> definitely a uh, castration's coming up, man. It's hosted by a guy named Glenn Washington or Glenn oh, Washington. Glenn Washington. Oh yeah, you yeah. Know, he he uh, does Snap Judgment. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So, oh, now I got your attention. Yeah, I, well, I, I love Glenn. He's great. Okay, okay. So. so Glenn Washington grew up in a cult himself, and they do oh, a full great. episode where he just talks about the cult he was raised in, which was not the Heaven's Gate cult. But the Heaven's Gate cult was like a fusion of every kind of crazy cult you could imagine. Basically, Christianity misinterpreted, plus they involved like UFOs and space kind of stuff, plus infused with great amounts of new agey kind of mushy unclear philosophy like is a, a bunch of this stuff it included abstinence and yes you're welcome it included some people some members willfully on their own went and got castrated by a doctor they didn't they didn't like do it with a rusty chainsaw they went to a real doctor had had a procedure done i'm just so glad this is our christmas episode I, there there is no christmas episode in my world so um mary so Okay, our New Year's episode, because they're right after each other. And here it is. like We are nearly on Christmas Eve as we record this. But anyway, in 1997, for people who don't remember, this guy named Marshall Applewhite, who was kind of like this wide-eyed, bald man who went by the name Doe. Did he only wear black Nikes? The black Nikes were part of the... Actually, they get they get to this. Oh, like wow. like okay. the the methodology of how they all committed suicide and how they all... Everything about this group is fascinating. It's just a brilliant study into cults and cult behavior and how people who were in general, the people who were in heaven's gate were well-educated upper middle-class people who were brought into this interesting, who were brought into this dangerous kind of thinking and they left their families and they left everything. And then a bunch of them committed suicide in 1997 because the comet Hale-Bopp, which was approaching the earth and was actually visible to the naked eye at the time had in one photograph that this amateur astronomer took had a thing behind it that kind of looked like either a spaceship or a lens flare. So I'm going to go with a spaceship. Okay. Cle- clearly it was, <laughs> it was a lens sp- flare. Clearly it was a spaceship. And, yeah. uh, and, and so that was their sign. And so, you know, it even ties in like nineties radio kook art bell and all kinds of crazy oh, stuff yeah. go, go, goes yeah. into the story. And it's just one of those, like, I can't wait for a new episode. They drop on Wednesday, every Wednesday. I'm like, Oh boy, new, new heaven's gate. And I, that's how I felt about crime town. That's how I felt about Mogul. And I think that podcasting is one of those things. And again, this isn't about us and what we're doing. I think what we're, we're, yeah, do- we're doing a little niche yeah. entertaining variety sort of thing. Yeah. Of yeah we're doing a little z- tiny portion of the industry. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're telling a story that I think is, we're not telling a story. We're, we're telling other people's stories. Great. But stuff like Kevin's gate is a kind of very personal journalism. I don't know that there's really a word for it. It's a little bit like this American life kind of a thing, but it's more like serial. Hmm. I think serial kicked this genre. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Serial. So serial is like, yeah, it's kind of a true crime story, but it's also a very personal story because Sarah Koenig becomes very uh, personally invested in what happens to Adnan Syed in that. And uh, I think that, we're going to hopefully see more of this kind of thing in a way. I feel like I used to read blogs and now I listen to podcasts mm-hmm. and I prefer, I prefer it this way because reading's hard, <laughs> but reading's hard. Okay. Re- that, I, I did not expect to hear that from you. Reading's <laughs> reading takes effort. No, I just, no, I, I just, I just love listening to a podcast. All of these podcasts that I'm listing like crime town, supposedly they're going to do a second season 
but they're going to focus on a different story. A mogul, I think, was just a one-off. This is definitely just a one-off, you know, unless Glenn Washington decides to do more cults. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But I think that Heaven's Gate specifically is kind of a one-off. It's a way to get very culturally literate or very personally sucked into this interest to the interest of a story that you would never hear otherwise. I agree. And uh, I think that's kind of the magic of radio, except now radio is even better with podcasting because that's that's really what it is. And this gives you the ability to do something else at the same time, too. You don't have to only be doing one thing like active listening. You can be driving or can yeah. be doing something else. Well, and I've, I'm on like a little bit of a health kick and I've been going to the gym and podcasts are perfect for the gym because the gym is so boring. Walking the dog. Working out. All Work, those yeah. And the other thing, too, is a student filmmaker hit me up on LinkedIn the other day. And she was asking me, like, you know, she was kind of telling me a little bit about herself. She's like, what would you recommend I do? And I said two things. Start a podcast, start a web series. And it's like. that That's good advice. Don't worry about being good at it. I mean, honestly, I could say to anybody who was interested in doing a podcast, I think our sound quality is decent. We could probably go out and spend $20,000 on microphones, but you could get the exact microphones we have for about 120 for the pair. Yeah. And then and then we record this into a Zoom H4N. And then I have like a special cocktail, which I will happily share with anyone that I put into uh, Adobe Audition. That's like, you know, a mix up because I know this room that we're recording in. That's like noise cancellation and EQ and a bunch of other stuff. And I just literally now just drop the voices into that mix in, onto that track. I just duplicate the project, drop it onto that track and uh, Bob's your uncle and anyone can do this. And for as little as probably $5 a month, you could uh, create, set up an RSS feed with liberated syndication or blueberry or one of the services and uh, get your podcast out there. The hard part is getting people to listen to it as we know, but yeah, yeah. We, we actually spend 20 bucks a month with, with blueberry. We're going to give a shout out to our, uh, to our, to our host. They, but but they we're, do, but we're, a, and they do a great job and we're paying for extra services. We are. Like we're, if, if you we're just paying for metrics and all kinds of stuff. like if you were a film student and you were creating a podcast, let me tell you 20 bucks a month is nothing that, that I mean, in film school world of like what it costs to, to do all this stuff. Yeah. Like go to film school. Yeah. 20 bucks a month is nothing. And I, I just think that it also gets you in the habit of telling stories. I think editing this podcast has made me a better video editor. To me, the hardest part about this business when we, you and I got into it was how to have a sustainable thing where you got to make your own stuff and you got practice at doing that. Cause certainly you could get all the practice you wanted getting coffee for somebody else. Mm. But if you wanted to actually be making your own stuff, it was very hard and digital made it easier. And it's just been getting easier and easier and easier to the point where if you started making a web series and you were shooting it on your iPhone, somebody would watch it. If it was so easy, everyone would do it. But guess what? Now everyone can do it. Now everyone, now it is. Well, it's not easy. It takes labor, but it doesn't, it doesn't, the money isn't the barrier. Yeah, that's true. Money is not, is not what keeps you from doing this now. So So to me, I actually, to kind of wrap this back around, I, I actually think that's kind of the state of storytelling is storytelling is kind of getting into a place where, more more people are able to do it and they're able to do it on some kind of professional standard Mm -hmm. and get good work out if they do good work and it takes a lot of time to get to the point where you do good work so you gotta just start somewhere i actually have a theory that it is getting uh smaller but not necessarily so small but it is getting more professional at a smaller level far more professional at a smaller level and i think that some of the movies which are done uh now on film or in in digital formats and really really sort of small budget ways, but still people getting paid and still uh, an actual release happening where people are seeing it on platforms and ways they want to see it. That's our future. So that's, that's people get paid for this. Yeah. I'm doing it way wrong. One or two. 
So. <laughs> Just two. And one of them is Steven Spielberg. Yeah, one of them is Steven Spielberg, and then there's everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> the only man being paid in the entire industry. All right, so 2018, if we continue this role, it's going to be a really good year for the Cinematography Podcast. I'm very excited about it. We've done three episodes in three weeks. I think we can keep this going. Is that one a week? Basically. Well, we probably won't do one a week. But Man, if we did one a week, then we'd have 50 episodes a year. Something like that. Somebody, we'd have to hire some editors. Yeah, well, you know, if we even did one every two weeks, it'd be 26. That's so not too bad. That'd be great. Well, let's let's hope that we have a more prolific 2018. Well, we got a we got an extended family of help now too. So well, and so. I'm making a new extended family. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna have a son in May. Oh yeah. And immediately I'm teaching putting that, him to work. I'm yeah. teaching that fucker how to edit. <laughs> First, you're gonna have to get him to sleep through the night. Then sleep edit. through the night. Object permanence. <laughs> editing. I'm glad. I'm glad you've got your priorities yeah, straight. Yeah, yeah this, this is good. And right. an appropriate use of curse words. <laughs> so, if you're listening to us and you've ever considered doing a podcast, we we challenge you in 2018 start your own podcast. Yeah, and let us know that you heard this and you decided to do it, and then maybe we can give you a shout out. We will plug you unless your podcast is offensive to us. And hey, Ben, I have a little bit of update for us. We're we're now in the top ten percent of all podcasts on iTunes, which is super cool. That's pretty sweet. That's pretty sweet. We uh, have hundreds of thousands of downloads which is also amazing holy so, crap i know it, it just snuck up on us and so uh thank you to all the people who are listening and please continue to uh review us on itunes i think that most people are very busy out there and don't have a chance to but we have 17 glowing reviews uh, we could probably use a few more so please yeah. definitely when you review us or give us uh, high stars and this goes for any podcast you listen to if you give us high ratings that helps boost our profile so if someone looks for filmmaking or cinematography it increases the chances that they stumble across this. So if you like what we're doing, we're not asking for any money, but if you just give us a, you know, a high rating and maybe say one nice thing, say great podcast. And that's all you got to say. That would be more than payment enough. Speaking of money. Hey, we have to thank Ari. Ari has been a wonderful sponsor for us this year. And I got to give a little shout out to another piece of technology that they came up with. It's super cool called master grips. So what is a master grip? A master grip is a fantastic hand grip that actually gives you all of your lens control down on your hand grip so when you're hand holding a camera you can adjust the iris you can adjust the focus you can adjust you can run start stop the camera all from y your fingertips no you need to do that and anyone who's ever worked with any of the kludgy ass handheld rigs and you know who you are and I'm one of them. You know how what a pain in the ass it is to change focus or iris or any of those things while you're operating. Yeah, you have to take your hand off the grip, reach up and reach a lens. You have to have an assistant working with you. Basically, this is not taking away an assistant's job, but it does give you at your fingertips the ability to to modify all the typical settings that you need to do on the fly, which is which is great. So, Airy Master Grips, amazing. Totally check them out. You can find them online. You can, you can find them at hot rod cameras yeah, you should come to hot rod cameras if you're in hollywood and uh you know meet Ilya and ask him to show you his master grips thank you i totally will <laughs> <laughs> that sounded dirty but it was actually it was, quite sincere no absolutely sincere he has a set of airy master grips that are a very professional thing he would love to show them to I you in love, person i would love to show and, them. and i'll tell you everybody Ilya's not a hard sale guy like if you come here no one's gonna it's not gonna be like you're buying a car nobody they just want they just want you to what's it gonna take to get you into these master grips <laughs> <laughs> No, that, that, that's the one thing that never happens here because that, yeah. yeah, that's, that's not our business. Our business is non-commission based, education based. Yeah. So, uh, Come on yeah, in. Yeah. 
kick kick the tires don't actually kick anything unless it's tires you can kick then tires. <laughs> but uh you know like you know we got some c stands you can kick yeah. you can kick those all you want yeah you know look at the technology mess around and uh, definitely look at the fine array of airy products that you guys have i think that sounds great so we'll be back in 2018 with all kinds of wonderful shows including dun, 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 we have a bunch of excellent new cinematographers and other folks who are kind of lined up <laughs> you like teased something oh. real and then gave us no information it's totally real we including have someone, audio we have a totally fantastic person <laughs> who's going to be on the show and i'm not saying who it is so in this episode i actually edited it so i still would like to thank mike Wilbanks because he's been a great addition to our team but i did edit the entire episode mike you rule and also i want to thank Kays alatrakshi who did all of the music for our show go to musicbykays.com check him out hire him to compose a score or frankly since Kays is actually kind of a Renaissance man. I'm not I'm not making this up. Hire him to color correct your film. He's an amazing colorist. He's color corrected two features already. A, a true bohemian. He is. And he's also he's also not a bad visual effects artist. I'm not making any of this up. Case <laughs> How can one person be so skilled at all these things? Eventually one day Case is gonna replace us all. <laughs> So he is truly becoming the one man studio. He is. And then last but not least, thank you so much to Alana Cody, without whom we would not have gotten three episodes out in three weeks. It's been kind of a whirlwind. Amazing. So thank you. And we will see you in 2018. Woohoo! This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.